Hello, everybody. Good evening. Good day to all of you. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing great. Um, and let's see who all we have with us. And yes, like yesterday, today's video is sponsored by the like button. Go hit it and help our sponsors. So we have with us uh, Krishna, Harsh, Raghav, Bihari, Gal, Alok, Divesh, a Korean name, Adonis, Nitesh, Harsh, Harsh, Zaveri, Harsh Patel, Akshay, Rahul, MMD, Akshit, Mohit, Nirmit, Samarth, Technical, Mobile Ideas, Aman, Shivraj, Vinay, Nevaguna, give you up, <laughs> Radha Krishna, Lakshya, Dungar Singh, Johan, Sena, Kalvan, DJ, Destruction, Sakit, Aman, Anvay, Tukesh, Animish, Kuldeep, Mohit, Anup, Akshit, Informative Mania, Umbrella Corporation, Divesh, Satinder, Mohit, Om, Kuldeep, uh, and uh, lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to see you here. Rajat, Pranav, Aman, Amar, Pranjal, Swapnil, and everybody else. So today we're going to talk about geopolitics and history mostly um, and current affairs. Uh, so let us begin with the questions. And I think we should begin with the question that everybody has asked the most. The, the question du jour, which is, of course, this one. Lots of people have asked me about this, so I've taken one which represents all the people who ask this question. I got dozens of various versions of this question. So the question is very simple. What is the Agnipat scheme? It is by Rajat. Is it a good or a bad initiative by the government? Why are so many people protesting? Yes, good question. It's become a big uh, well, yeah, uh, controversy for whatever reason. So let me share the screen and see uh, and, and kind of show what's going on. So people are people are saying it's a bad scheme. Uh, various uh, retired person, etc., person, army generals, and so on. So let me give you just one example of that. Uh, so this is one example. There are lots of uh, retired uh, army personnel who are saying similar things. So this is by a. Uh, Lieutenant General Vinod Bhatia retired. And uh, this gentleman says, death knell for the armed forces. TOD, not tour of duty, not tested. No pilot project, straight implementation. Will also lead to the militarization of society. Nearly 75% youth uh, year on year back rejected and dejected without a job. Semi-trained in arms, especially, example, it's not a good idea. Nobody gains, no one gains. Gains. So there is one example and there are lots of other examples, lots of media people, lots of retired uh, army people and so on are criticizing this. Uh, so I read some art an article said that this is like a kindergarten scheme for the army. It's going to ruin the army, blah, 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 and on and on. So the impression that they are trying to create is that this is terrible for the armed forces. It's going to be the death knell for the armed forces. This is the end, destroyed. The army is going to be destroyed and so on. How much of this is true? They were saying similar things about the farm laws. And I supported the farm laws and I got hundreds of comments saying that, Abhijit, you're wrong. Abhijit, you're mistaken. You're stupid. Blah, blah, blah. Fine. Okay. I, you disagree. I, it's, fine with, it's fine with me. I don't take it personally. Now, so what are the characteristics of the tour of duty, the Agnipat scheme? Uh, it is between the ages of 17 and half, I think, and 22 or 23 or something. Uh, this year, it's going to be extended up to a, a couple of years of age maybe up to 24 or something like that, whatever it is. So this year is an exceptional year. They're going to extend it by two years, the age, the upper age. But uh, going forward is going to be between 17 and, a half, 17 and a half years and 22. So if you are within that age range, you are eligible for this. Now it's a four-year 
tour of duty. So you're not getting a permanent job. You're getting a four-year commission. In those four years, you will become a proper soldier. You'll be trained. The training is about six months. Then you go on a tour of duty. You serve in the armed forces. You get a salary of, uh, I don't know, 30, 40,000 a month, something like that. Yeah. And then after the end of four years, <clears throat> one-fourth of the people who came into your batch will be retained. The rest will be released back into the civilian population. What you will get if you're released is you will get about 12 lakh rupees that that's a, that's what the government will give you lump some kind of thing right it's a 12 lakh rupee corpus 11 point something nearly 12 lakh rupees and since you have served in the armed forces for 4 years and since there are there are there's almost no expenditure the salary that you acquired will also be saved so that's roughly give it uh, give or take 10 lakh rupees so once you are out Let's say you went in at the age of of the at the age of eighteen, and you're out at the age of twenty-two. At the age of twenty-two, you will get a lump sum twenty-two lakh rupee corpus of money, twenty-two lakh rupees. At the age of twenty-two, you have twenty-two lakh rupees in your bank account. How many twenty-two-year-olds know what twenty-two lakh rupees looks like? I didn't know what twenty-two lakh rupees looked like at the age of twenty-two. I didn't know what 10 lakh rupees looked like at the age of 22. So you are getting a start in life with 22 lakh rupees. Can you imagine that? Is that a bad thing? And see, it's like this. Not everybody is cut out for the armed forces. So one-fourth will be retained, those who have performed really well and those who have shown the inclination to stay in for the long game. The others, they will get all the skills, all the training the leadership training, the, the fitness training, various other mechanical and uh, technological training that you need in the armed forces to be effective. And then you're out into the job market at the age of 22 when everybody else graduates and so on. You already got some training which will add to the credit, which will be like half a graduation. So whatever training you got in these four years, will those that will add, that will be recognized as credits towards a degree. So it will be like half your degree is done right there in case you want to go for a degree. But most people, I would say, would take those 22 lakh rupees and start a business or start something. Or so, some people would want to go into the uh, CRPF or uh, whatever it is, right? Something like that. So there are so many options open at the age of 22 once you're out of it. Now, <clears throat> and one of the uh, objections that people are raising is that in six months, you cannot train a soldier. In four years, you will not be trained sufficiently. It is going to reduce the army to a kindergarten. Four years. Eh? That's what they're saying. I think everybody on this channel and most people in India have the highest regard for the IDF, Israeli Defense Force. Yes. Do you know that in Israel there is compulsory conscription? It's a three-year tour of duty. In three years, they train their personnel, their soldiers fully. At the, after this three-year term, they're back into the civilian population. You think the Israeli armed forces are not sufficiently well-trained? Is that the impression that you get? No. They are one of the best and most professional armed forces in the world. And their training period, their entire tour period is three years. We are doing it for four years. You think we can't achieve the same level or better level of proficiency and competence and professionalism in a four-year term? Tour of duty? What nonsense is this sort of argument? Stupid argument. In Israel, you have three years. Similar th similar cases uh, are there in the US, in, in South Korea. They also have similar things. Also Russia, Germany, Taiwan, the UK. All of these countries have similar uh, schemes. 
these are they all have extremely well trained armed forces so this argument falls flat on its face and these people who are making the arguments that uh, this is not tested this is a death knell for armed forces they seem to have some ulterior, ulterior motives all right i am not pointing fingers at any specific individual i am not even pointing fingers at the the, tweet, the person whose tweet i showed i'm just saying in general there seems to be something going on they are trying to misrepresent what is happening right now the average age of the average indian armed forces soldier or or officer or whatever the average age of any any random person is about 32 to 33 years it's it's rather rather old so by implementing the scheme we're going to have a younger fitter and more modern and more dynamic corpus of soldiers right in the armed forces it's good we need fresh intake we need uh, young blood in the armed forces younger people stronger fitter stronger and fitter people right and a more modern outlook that comes in from the young people teenagers and youngsters are very future future oriented more they are very modern modern their orientation and attitude is very modern much more than people who are older so it's a good thing and not everybody wants a job for life today the teenagers the youngsters they want to explore different things but they also want to contribute something to their country and to the defense of their country this is a scheme that is perfect for that you know and some people say that it's going to destroy the culture of the armed forces what stupid claim is that the culture and the traditions of the armed forces are passed on via the officers and this agni veer agnipat scheme is not for the intake of officers it is for the intake of personnel who come below the officer level so it's not going to change anything about the culture of the armed forces if the officers can do their job then the culture is there so please understand i am not in any way criticizing the way the armed forces are but they need reforms india has one of the best and most professional armies and militaries in the world we are proud of everything they have achieved we are proud of everything they are still doing today they are putting their lives on the line every single day and night while we are sitting comfortably wherever we are so we are proud of the armed forces but it does need reforms the indian army the indian military is still run the way it was run in the 1960s and 50s and 40s many of these traditions and all that the culture it comes back from the the british raj days that needs to slowly go we need professionalism we need what's called lateral intake we need people who can come and go for for a certain duration and then go back i mean look at countries where you have such schemes the uh, the people who have come out of the armed forces have contributed so much to society many us presidents were they served in the marines or the or the air force or navy or whatever right john f kennedy is an example Uh, George Bush's father, the the first Bush, George Bush Junior uh, Senior, he served in Second World War. He was shot down by the Japanese, you know. And some people say it's going to lead to the militarization of society. I think India's society needs a little bit of militarization and that uh, military uh, attitude. I think that would really help Indian society because right now Indian society, you know, it's it's kind of undisciplined, indisciplined. It needs some of that, and. the indian government has said very clearly that we are not going to take back this scheme good job don't take it back and once this scheme is implemented yes some things will need to be changed some tweaks will have to be made that's what happens with any scheme anywhere in the world so after one year two years three years four years five years they're going to refine the scheme 
make some changes and it's going to be become even better and in about a decade's time what's going to happen is that we will have more than 1 million trained reserves who have been released back into the uh, civilian population and these trained reserves are very well they can come in very handy in times of need if there is a war well we you know what kind of neighborhood we are sitting in in india we have a bad neighborhood we have very bad neighbors in case there is a war and we need to pull up some reserves you will have a ready made population of well trained reserves who can come back and they know how to handle weapons they know how the army works they know how these things work and they'll be able to fit back on demand into the armed forces you know well trained motivated patriotic people who have gone through four years of training and service i mean it is an excellent thing now some people will not agree with it it's fine today what is the date today uh, today is the 19th of june 2022 take out your diaries write it down that abhijit chawla said this on 19th of june 2022 that this is an excellent scheme then come back in 10 years time open the diary and then tell, then ask yourself was i right or was i wrong i was right about the farm laws the government had to take it back fine this scheme is even better this is an excellent scheme for the military for the nation people will create the sort of uh, narrative that it's a bad thing come back in 10 years time and then see do a little bit of growing up right now you may be doubtful because your favorite uh, influencer influencer or or news reader or or youtuber or whatever it has it must have told you that this is a bad scheme come back in 10 years after you do a bit of growing up and then <laughs> and then see then ask yourself was this a good scheme or a bad scheme was was i right or wrong i'm i guarantee you likh ke rakh lo i am right it's an excellent scheme for india so that is what i have to say about this and i know lots of people on both sides these days there are two wings in india left wing and right wing and left wing is totally against the scheme we know that but plenty of various influential people on the so called right wing are also disparaging this plan this this scheme i'm not naming anybody but we know that some people are doing that many people are doing that well they are all wrong and i wonder why they are doing this some people are very much anti <laughs> anything that this government does and i find it very strange and perplexing and i wonder what the motivation is so i am very clear about this this is an excellent scheme the agnibat scheme and we should all support it it's going to be very beneficial for the country for the military in the long run the game is always in the long run not the short term all right so i support it 100% and so should you Prem Sudha Singh says when did our millennium of humiliation end and if it is still continuing when will it end hmm the millennium of humiliation has never ended it is still in force why is it still in force because india is still colonized all that happened in the last 1000 years the two waves of colonization the first was the turkic wave of colonization and the second was the uh, european wave of colonization all the effects all the harm they did to india as a civilization as a culture as a society and as a modern nation state that harm still endures the effects of the colonization are still visible they are still being lived by us look at the language that we are speaking in all over our media look at what the language i am speaking in i am just as mentally colonized as anybody else i am more comfortable speaking english than various other indian languages uh, yeah unfortunately 
that's the way we have been raised brought up and so on we are still colonized as long as we are colonized the millennium millennium of humiliation has not ended and the other thing i would like to say is that uh, as long as india is there is external interference within india as long as india does not have a fully independent foreign policy and indian indian internal policy there the, the millennium of humiliation has not ended yet and india right now does not have a, we have a very good government we have a very strong government but there are forces external to india that are still way too powerful us, for us to resist so they succeed in messing up our internal affairs and and pressurizing us on the foreign policy front we are now pushing back but there is still a long way to go let me give you an example uh, we were speaking about the agni agni path scheme uh, let me uh, share something to give you an example of what i mean by this so this is a tweet by mr vikram sood the frequency and ease with 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 which riots arson and violence for totally unrelated and trivial issues have been occurring means that there is a nationwide well oiled internal ecosystem aided by an external facility that enables this to happen country wide furthermore mr sood says and let's wait for it to load hello going to load yes so this is a continuation of the, of the previous tweet this is not democracy at work but a result of a sinister campaign designed to create anarchy and weaken the country politically economically militarily this campaign is likely to continue until the next elections implications not only for the government but also for the country mr vikram sood in case you don't know is the former head the former head of the research and intelligence wing raw india's external intelligence agency mr vikram sood is a former head of the raw so he knows what he is saying he knows what's going on so he, when he, when he says this we've got to take it very seriously what he is implying is that there is an internal system in within india that works against the inter, indian national interest and this is all supported by an external external forces and external powers that's what he is saying that's precisely what i mean so we are still or we are still being coerced and bullied and pushed around and our internal affairs are being well there is interference internally by foreign powers and there is pressure on us vis-a-vis -vis the foreign policy also by certain foreign powers we know who they are so it's still going on so the humiliation of the millennium of humiliation has not ended we are still living through it it will end when india regains its historical position economically military and civilizationally that's when the millennium of humiliation will officially end we are far from that yet it may still be another 50 or 100 years depending on what we do today as a as a people as a country as a civilization and each what each of us individually does for the country so it all rests in the hands of individuals and the government so it's not ended yet Okay Domur Akil says I am from Mauritius last year the international court of justice gave Mauritius the sovereignty over the Chago archipelago but the american army is not leaving diego garcia and recently the mauritian flag was taken down on the island of peros banos could you give an explanation of what's happening there what is the geographical importance why are no countries debating this good question whenever we talk about these issues we, you know what i'm going to do i'm going to pull up the map where's the map where's the map let me find the map where is the map um the map here's the map come on map here we are all right so akil is talking about the chago archipelago vis-a-vis -vis mauritius so what is where is mauritius once again 
so we know where india is this here is india the indian subcontinent this is the indian ocean region which well essentially should be our backyard and if you go south we have the two islands of mauritius in the reunion and if we go further north towards the seychelles you will find uh, further north from seychelles south of the maldives okay here not north from the seychelles east from seychelles okay here we are this is the Chago archipelago this entire thing it's it's a, it's a bunch of islands it's an archipelago and the largest uh island is this one here diego garcia it's called the british indian ocean territory so what is the story here right so mauritius claims that this belongs to them that, that the this region the chago archipelago is under mauritian sovereignty mauritius should have the sovereignty over this region so what is the dispute what is the history right uh, let me close this for a while uh, so that you understand what's happening okay so that's the question once again so what 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 is the dispute all about let's look back at the history of the place right so it all begins in the 19th century i think in the early 19th century around 1815 1814 uh, the british acquired took possession of the chago archipelago this bunch of islands now th this was not some uninhabited bunch of islands there were people living there the chagosian people so these people, their ancestry is mostly African, Madagascar, Mozambique, other Eastern African nations. And there is eventually, later on, there, there came to be a significant amount of Indian and Malay, Malaysian, Malay ancestry, including many people from Mauritius who were, who were brought there and made to settle down there. So the British in the 19th century took over Seychelles and the Mauritius as well, and Mauritius as well, which I just showed you on the map, right? Uh, so, how did Indians end up there? So, that is something I need to explain to you as well. So, let me share my screen once again. So, in the 19th century, the British, they sent a bunch of Indian indentured workers uh, into to various places, various parts of the world. Half a million were transported to Mauritius. When you say indentured workers, it's a nice word for slaves. The British took Indians as, as essentially as slaves. They would pay them a little amount of money. So technically it's not slavery, but it's nothing but slavery. So these people were taken against their wishes and they were transported to these far off places in the world and they were moved there forever. They had no way of coming back to India ever and their descendants still live there. So half a million almost to Mauritius, another 150,000, 1.5 lakhs to Eastern Africa, uh, Southern Africa, South Africa and uh, Tanzania, etc. Kenya, that region, East Africa. And another half a million to uh, the West Indies, to places uh, like uh, Guyana, Trinidad, and so on, right? So the West Indies, East Africa, and Mauritius, Ile Maurice. So that's where Indians were transported from Mauritius. Some of them were transported to Chago. So the Chagosian people, their ancestry is African and some Indian and some Malay, Malay ancestry. So that is what this ethnic group is like. Now, so this was the 19th century. That's what happened. In the early 20th century, around 1903 or so, Seychelles was separated from this, uh, from the British possessions. It became a separate, it was administered separately. Right? Now, the reason why the British took over all these, all these islands in the Indian Ocean region was to consolidate their hold over this vital 
piece of maritime real estate they they wanted to control all the import the the exit points all the sea routes and all that and what better way to do it than to control various territories and various islands and various archipelagos in this region strategic locations from which you can in which you can place your navy and control the entire region right so that's why that they did that and of course you the more territory you acquire and administer the more power you have over the over the whole world so uh, in 1902 1903 seychelles was separated and they kept on administering uh, mauritius and shago now in 1956 the british were already weakened by the disaster in the second world war uh the us was the dominant power then there was this uh, suez crisis in 1956 that's a whole different story very interesting and very uh, it's kind of forgotten today what happened in suez but it kind of changed world history so uh, 1956 was the suez cri- crisis it was all about control of the suez canal port said and uh, the that region uh and the british wanted to control it the egyptians tried wanted to nationalize it there was a war there and the americans eventually armed twisted the british and the french into getting out of there and from that day onwards the british were essentially vassals of the of the americans so after 1956 after the disaster in the suez crisis the british distra- decided to withdraw east of suez yeah so they decided to withdraw from their territorial possessions east of suez in 1965 the british what they did was they separated the shago archipelago from mauritius yeah separate administrative division in 1965 itself there was a us uk agreement which gave the americans kind of possession of the shago archipelago especially the diego garcia uh, island right and they would use it for military purposes in 1968 mauritius was given independence but shago archipelago was not made part of that right and the mauritius government has always claimed that as part of their territory because it was i mean technically for the longest time it was part it was administered from mauritius and the people also have uh, links to mauritius but the british said uh, uh, refused to do that and they gave it to the us in 2016 the lease of the us was extended by another 20 years so let's take a look at diego garcia what does this place look like diego garcia so the shago archipelago actually is an extension of the lakshadweep and maldives system okay maldives uh historically culturally is part of the indian uh civilization indian subcontinent the people of maldives are of indian origin they are the same ethnicity as people in southern india and they all they have in maldivian history they have always known about the shago archipelago uh, it was quite away south from the maldives but maldivians would go there from time to time sometimes in during storms they would get shipwrecked there and they would have to be rescued and so on so historically before the european uh, intrusion into this region it was you could say part of the greater indian territory shago archipelago now the british indian territory diego garcia this is what it looks like okay it's it's a wonderfully constructed <laughs> uh island there is this is entirely more or less run by the us this is the diego garcia airport a very important strategic location for the us from which they can essentially watch over everything that's happening in the indian ocean region they can keep an eye on what india is doing 
they can keep an eye on india's activities naval activities military activities other activities they can keep an eye on the chinese what the chinese are doing and what's happening in sri lanka it's it's a prime centrally located location so that's why the us wants this and they they want to hang on to it right so and in 2016 they they got another extension of 20 years about 30 about 3 to 5000 american military personnel are typically stationed at diego garcia at any given point of time in 2017 the international court of justice said that they should go back to mauritius it should be it belongs to mauritius and then later on the international tribune tri- tribunal for the law of the sea also said that this should go to mauritius it belongs to mauritius and it is administered illegally by the uk and by extension by the us so so the uh, so it's very clear what the un what the international court of justice what the what the international tribunal for tribunal for the law of the sea they are all in agreement that this should belong to mauritius and they have ordered the uk to give it back to mauritius it's not happened they have taken no action about this the americans are also supporting the uk which is very strange because they talk about a rules based international order what happened to their precious rules based international order when it came to a dispute between the philippines and the chinese when the international tribunal for the law of the sea ruled in favor of the of the philippines the americans supported that yeah the americans supported the ruling when it was in favor of the philippines but now when it's in favor of the of the mauritians and the chagosians the americans don't want are, are are refusing to agree to it so what happened to the rules based international order it it they will support it when it is in favor of when it's when it's in their favor and they will refuse to uh, to agree to it when it's not in their favor this makes the us look very bad and they're not going to give it up they want to hang on to diego garcia it's very important for them but what then they should stop the hypocrisy about this rules based international order and all that so that is what's happening that's why it's geographically important that's why it's geopolitically important and why is nobody debating about this because the americans are all powerful you don't want to offend them that's what it is the the uk doesn't matter the uk is a pushover the uk is well a vassal state of the us the chinese uh, would say on on their global times twitter account that the, that the uk are lap dogs of the us i don't say that the chinese say that okay so that's how it is so the uk doesn't matter it's the us that's holding on to this territory and that it's it's important because it's a, it's a very well geographically located place centrally located and uh, it's a very good uh, the island its geography is very good for having a large naval and air force base there and that's why they want to hold on to it and they don't really care about rules and laws and anything it's all about holding on to everything they have so that's what it is so that's what's happening i don't see anything going in favor of the people of shago uh, the mauritians uh, recently uh, landed there and did something but obviously not at diego garcia i'm sure somewhere else like you said uh, on the island of peros banos and so on so the americans will what i mean the mauritian the mauritians are just a small little country they are well just an island nation right and in geopolitics might is right it's the law of the jungle and that's just how it works so that's what's happening and nobody wants to offend the americans so no one's talking about it human rights and justice and fairness and equality and rules rules based order these are nice words to use when it when it suits you but it actually has no real meaning so unfortunately that's where we are 
Okay, this is by Darshan asking for this asking this for the 482nd time. Why do some castes like Brahmins and Jats have more step in Eastern European ancestry than the other castes in the Indian subcontinent? Is it due to the Aryan imagination theory or something else? Reply please and so on. Yeah. Okay. Darshan. So there is no such thing as a caste. Alright. There is there are Jatis and Varnas and all that. The caste term is a is a colonial imposition upon us and so on. But let's not go there. Let's talk about the so-called step ancestry and all that. So what is this? Wonderful step ancestry. Let's go back to the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. So, what is the step? The step is the 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 a certain region across Eurasia, all the way from Manchuria in the east. You know this here, here. If you can see my mouse pointer, this this region is Manchuria, all the way from here across Mongolia. If you can see where Mongolia is, yeah, this is Mongolia. From Kazakhstan all the way to Ukraine, Belarus, Eastern Asia, Eastern Europe, and southern parts of Russia, continental, Eurasian Russia. All of that is the Eurasian steppe or steppe or whatever you want to call it. That is the steppe. Now in the Aryan invasion, migration, tourism, picnic, etc. theory, apparently for the longest time, the researchers used to say that there was an Aryan invasion, then it was a migration and so on. And it came from the steppe, from the Eurasian steppe. That's what they claimed. And there is clear affinity between Indian populations and populations of, of Europe. We know that. We all know that. And some components, some genetic components are higher in some, some parts of India. And there is more similarity between some parts of India and some parts of Europe and so on and so forth, which is obviously bound to happen because there is common genetic origin. We all know that. The only question is where does it, where did it originate? We all know that uh, 70, 80,000 years ago, we were, our ancestors were in Africa. So from, from Africa, they moved into Eurasia. They wandered around. Eventually, they settled down in India. India was the original founder zone of the out of Africa migration. From India, there were migrations to all parts of Eurasia. We met the Neanderthals. We interbred with them. So most non-African humans have some Neanderthal ancestry. Indians mostly don't have it for some reason. And so on. Long story. Now the story, the real question is the Aryan invasion thing, migration thing. The real question, central question is what is the origin of Sanskrit and Hinduism? It's not a genetic question at all. It's about the what is the origin of Sanskrit, the Indo-European languages and the ancient Indo-European culture, which is Hinduism. That is the real question. And everyone, that is the, the question they are trying to, they're trying to say it came from out of India. So they want to portray Indian culture as being an, a predatory invasive culture and Sanskrit uh, as well. That is the whole crux of the story. And they wrap it inside these uh, genetic stories and all that. There is no link, actual link between genetics and languages, genetics and culture. But that's a different story. The question is about the Jats and the Brahmins and so on. Why do they have more step ancestry? Hmm? So this term, step ancestry, it's a nice tag that they have constructed. And when you use this tag, yesterday I, there was a question that I got, that can a person with no scientific training tell whether a certain piece of research is authentic or not? And there is no way a person without scientific training can tell whether research is authentic or not. So it's very easy to mislead people by somebody pausing in, posing as an expert and saying, yeah, this is what has happened. There are certain uh, business journalists who have written books nowadays. Tony Joseph who's written, written a book about the, uh, the what? Early Indians or some, some such thing. Terrible book. I have reviewed it. Terrible book. All lies. 
all distortions and you know, all that. So what is this step ancestry? It is a term, it is a, a term uh, uh, they've created. It is a tag they've attached, attached to a certain group of genes, step ancestry. Hmm? And it's supposed to be the overall uh, source of the Indo-European, so-called Aryan ethnicity and languages and culture. So they say that this so-called step ancestry, this, this certain genetic component is the entire origin of all Indo-European languages and culture. And they have given it the title of step ancestry. They could have given it a different title, Martian ancestry. Then we would all imagine that our people came from Mars, right? Now the question is, what is the origin of this so-called step ancestry? They say that there was a group of people in the Eurasian steppe who then came to India, to Iran, and they went westwards, and they are the origin uh, originators, the pre pregenitors of the Indo-European peoples and languages and culture. This, they say, happened about five or 6,000 years before today. My question is very simple. Where did those people come from? The people who gave rise to the step, so-called step ancestry, where did their ancestors come from? Answer that question. Can they answer it? Apparently, nowadays we can. So let's find out what that is. Eh? One, one second. So there are a number of famous geneticists in the world. We have our own geneticist, famous geneticist. Uh, his name is Dr. Neeraj Rai. But when I talk about Dr. Neeraj Rai, people will say, oh, he's Indian. Indians don't know anything. Give us a different source, a Western source. You know, Garki Murgi Dal Barabar. Dr. Neeraj Rai is one of the best geneticists in the world. But people don't want to talk about him. So, okay, let's talk about somebody else. I have a whole conversation with Dr. Neeraj Rai about this various, about the same topic. But uh, let me talk about somebody else. So, let us talk about the great, renowned Dr. David Reich. Reich. So, this is a lecture that Dr. Reich, Reich gave on the 12th of July, 2022. A week before today. A week before today. Last Sunday, he gave this lecture. Okay. The title of the lecture is The Genetic History of the Southern Arc, A Bridge Between West Asia and Europe. Okay. So what is this Southern Arc? The Southern Arc is an area divided geographically between West Asia and Europe, which we define as spanning the culturally entangled regions of Anatolia and its neighbors in both Europe, Asia and the Balkans, and in West Asia, Cyprus, Armenia, the Levant, Iraq, and Iran. So that is what he defines as the southern arc. The eastern region of the southern arc is Iraq and Iran. Now, what is this lecture all about and what does it say? Let's look at the, <laughs> the last paragraph. A striking signal of steppe migration into the southern arc is evident in Armenia and northwest Iran, where admixture with the Yamnaya patrilineal descendants occurred, coinciding with the 3rd millennium BCE displacement from the steppe itself. This ancestry pervasive across numerous sites, sites of Armenia from 2000 to 600 BC was diluted, blah, 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 blah. The impermeability of Anatolia to exogenous migration contrasts with our finding that the Yamnaya had two distinct gene flows, both from West Asia, suggesting that the Indo-Anatolian language family originated in the eastern wing of the southern arc and that the steppe served only as a secondary staging area of the Indo-European language dispersal. Can you see what this great famous gentleman is saying here? 
the steppe served as a secondary staging area of indo-european language dispersal yeah and the so the yamnaya had two distinct gene flows both from west asia right and what was the thing about eastern uh, where is it eastern um, one second let me search for it yeah the indo anatolian language family originated in the eastern wing of the southern arc what is the e eastern wing of the southern arc that he spoke about let me just quickly show you on the map what this eastern wing he's talking about <laughs> one second let me go on the map and show you the eastern wing where is the map here's the map where's the map come on map the eastern wing that he speaks about is iran all right so so until now they were saying that this so called steppe ancestry originated in in central asia in the central asian steppe eurasian steppe now in a round about complicated way dr rike is saying that the steppe itself was a secondary point of dispersal what was he saying uh the steppe served as a secondary staging area of the indo-european dispersal language dispersal and and genetic dispersal and the actual staging the, the actual origin seems to be in the eastern uh what eastern eastern wing of the southern arc which is now iran so slowly 10 years ago they were saying it is the central asian steppe now they are saying it is the eastern wing of the southern arc which is iran and if you watch my conversation with dr neeraj rai he is very clear that geographically iran is part of the indian subcontinent because why do i say this why does he say this because if you want to go from from central asia into india it is extraordinarily difficult there are so many mountain ranges to cross cross it's very cold you will die you will most likely die but if you want to cross from india into iran you just have to carry some water and maybe a donkey or a camel and some food and you just have to walk walk west and you will easily reach iran there's nothing in the way so india and iran it is part of the ex extended geographical region of the indian subcontinent so what dr rike is saying that the so called steppe ancestry actually originates in the southern wing of the <laughs> in the eastern wing of the southern arc it originates in iraq 2 3 years down the line he will quietly make a more complicated statement saying it it originates further east in it will he will now say pakistan and afghanistan in 10 years time they will say india let us be very clear about this let us be very clear about this when they say step ancestry we have to ask them where is the origin of the step ancestry itself and this link that i just showed you this lecture that dr rike gave last week in that he is saying that this step ancestry doesn't originate in the step it originates in iran he is saying now after some more genetic data will is going to come up this year there's going to be an r1a paper that will be published from india once that paper is published dr rike will say that the the step ancestry originates essentially from the indus valley region it's going to happen so all of these complicated discussion all of these these complicated topics actually the, we, you have to ask a very simple question what is the origin of it all the so called step ancestry where did that come from were they born in the step with those human beings that they originated from the ground or did they migrate from somewhere else of course they migrated from somewhere else that is the question and at the end of the day when all the data is out 
when sufficient data is revealed it is going to be very clear it all came from the indian subcontinent whether it is iran or further east from iran most likely it's further east from iran because we know very well the iranians are descendants of ancient indians it's very clear so that is the crux of the matter wait for some time patience patience i advocate patience in the next 5 years all of the, all of these people they're going to sing the same story and the step ancestry will say will originate from india it's going to happen right gagan chengappa says as but as per tv serials the great man ashok got betrayals one of that was that his mother was killed from the childhood itself so he took revenge by killing his brothers okay tell me something let's say i am a kid let's say i am 15 years old i want to be a great scientist i want to be a scientist how should i study science should i watch science fiction movies and serials to learn science or should i spend hundreds of hours studying science from actual proper textbooks and solving thousands of problems and and investing the time and the effort and the hard work into actually reading and studying can you become a great scientist very proficient in science quantum mechanics relativity whatever by watching tv serials about science no you can't similarly if you want to understand history please stop watching tv serials it's entertainment it's fiction if you want to learn actual history please stop relying on tv serials read there is no substitute for reading there is no substitute for hard work i understand that you, this is the maybe you don't have access to books so please dear friend gagan please if you are really interested in history invest in at least one or two good history books for, for about let's say the mauryan era or whatever whichever uh, phase of indian history you're interested in invest in a couple of books read those books and that will give you a better perspective than tv serials tv serials is all about viewership it's all about uh, creating interest and the best way to create interest is by distorting history and saying oh my god everything you've been taught is wrong right so please that's not the way to study history okay thank you bakhanani says if you compare the achievements and personality of chandragupta maurya and his grandson ashok who comes out as more su- successful who is truly worthy of the title the great so chandragupta maurya and his uh, descendant ashok grandson ashok who was greater who was who is more successful so let's see where the two came from let's begin with ashok ashok was the son of a great mauryan emperor right bindusar was it bindusar most likely bindusar uh so his father was already the emperor of all of india and all he did was he he took over the reins of the kingdom the crown from his father in whatever way was best he killed off his siblings his half siblings and he put down various rebellions and so on because he was killing people and so on and he waged a few wars he committed committed this atrocity in kalinga and then he said okay now i'm done i'm now peace and then he uplifted this obscure sect philosophical sect called the called the bodh sect and he turned it into a global force that's what ashok did so what great struggle did he undergo he killed off all his siblings and step siblings and he waged a few wars and he crushed a few rebellions that's what he did what did chandragupta maurya did uh, do what did chandragupta maurya do he was born in obscurity he was not royalty he had no royal lineage he was most likely an orphan we don't even know who his parents were right so he had 
he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth like ashok he was not born as a prince he was born in obscurity baby in poverty we don't know what he was born as we don't know who his parents were he was an orphan and he obviously exhibited certain traits that the great vishnugupta chanakya noticed and he recognized that that there is some potential in this boy and what vishnugupta chanakya did was he trained this boy in state statecraft and various other matters like maybe military arts and strategy and tactics and all that and with the help of the great vishnugupta chanakya under his mentorship this unknown boy of obscure origins went on to become in a span of about 20 years the emperor of all of india he conquered the whole of india the story of how he did that is not even well known so if you compare chandragupta maurya with ashok there is no question about who was greater who was more successful chandragupta maurya was the most successful of all of the mauryan emperors the greatest of them all he created an empire from nowhere i speak about napoleon i have a video on this channel about napoleon in which i speak about in brief about his history that he went from obscurity to emperor in about 19 years chandragupta did something way greater than that way greater than what napoleon achieved there was an existing empire the nanda empire which was most likely in power when the alleged invasion by alexander happened most likely it was the nandas who were in power and within 20 years the entirety of the indian subcontinent was ruled by chandragupta so that is an incredible spectacular achievement there is no question about who was greater it was chandragupta maurya who was greater samhita says why does the english language have so many different accents all over the world what is the main history behind these accents which one is the oldest you know it's very funny but it <laughs> randomly strikes my mind okay see in every part of the world there are different languages within india which is a vast subcontinent we have different languages some languages sound very different so people who grow up in this region speaking a certain mother tongue they will acquire certain phonetic traits certain ways of pronouncing pronouncing certain sounds right so when you speak a foreign language you, some of your native uh, accents and pronunciations will come into it so that's why when indians speak english they speak it in a certain way with certain accents when the japanese speak english they speak it in a different way they don't say sorry they say solly they don't say english they say english and so on the chinese speak english in a different way the africans do and so on and similarly if you were asked if you were to ask somebody from france to speak hindi they would speak in, a, in with hindi with a for, with a with a french accent if somebody from china speaks hindi they would speak it with a chinese accent imagine hypothetically imagine some italian person speaking hindi how will that sound just imagine it's never happened but maybe you you could think of some such thing so that's how it is everybody has a certain native accent and any language they speak will be infused with their native accent and that's why whether it's english whether it's hindi whether it is swahili when somebody who is non native speaks that language they will add their own native accent and pronunciation to it so that's why it happens okay hedgehog's dilemma says if pakistan fragments what path will go to india it's very clear if if not if when pakistan fragments kashmir the entirety of kashmir will come back to india the parts that are under illegal pakistani occupation uh, gilgit baltistan and pakistan occupied kashmir that will immediately come back to india we will deal with the chinese occupied chaksgam valley in due course that also will return to india in due course no doubt about it 
so when Pakistan fragments, that's what's going to happen immediately. POK, Gilgit-Baldistan will come back to India immediately. What else will happen? The other parts of Pakistan, Punjab, Pakistani Punjab, Western Punjab, Sindh, Balochistan, Northwest Frontier Province or, or Pashtunistan, all these will not come to We don't want them to come to India. Are we really prepared to absorb, to reabsorb a radicalized terrorist population into India? I'm not saying all Pakistanis are terrorists. I have nothing against the Pakistani people. I have said this on various channels. Yeah, Nothing personal against them. They are our people. The same blood, same DNA, same ancestry. Nothing against them. Right? But this is a highly radicalized population. See what they are taught. See last week what one of the Pakistani teachers, professor, college or professor, uh, college professor wrote what they are teaching, what the students are taught. They are taught poison against India. So this is a highly radicalized population. There is a significant percentage of the population, non-trivial percentage of the population that supports terrorism and a significant percentage of them want India destroyed. Do we want to reabsorb those people right now? No, we don't. Let Sindh become Sindhudesh independent. Let Balochistan become independent Balochistan. Let Pashtunistan return to Afghanistan. Let the Pashtuns finally have their unified homeland. I'll be very happy to see that. Um, let uh, Pakistani Punjab become its own country. Good for them. Balle, balle. Yeah. And Kashmir obviously will return to India. So that's what will happen. And maybe in 50 years, 100 years, we will de-radicalize them slowly. There are certain de-whatever programs happening right now. Ukraine has been denazified and so on. So we will eventually slowly over time de-radicalize them. And when the time is right, we will reabsorb them into the motherland of India. That's a long-term project. 50 years, 100 years. But immediately when the country is fragmented, those nations should be, those territories should be given independence. Kashmir should be reabsorbed into India. But if Pashtunistan goes back to Afghanistan and the other territories become independent countries. That's what should happen immediately. Debashrit says, may the force be with you. Yes, thank you. What should be our strategy in the Indian Ocean region to create dominance? And how far in the ocean should we aim for dominance? Okay, good question. Let's go to the map. Here's the map. Here's the map. The Indian Ocean region is the entire region south of the Indian subcontinent. So this is the Indian subcontinent, as you know. And the entire region south of it is the Indian Ocean region, which goes, which uh, extends from the coastline of Indonesia, Burma, the Andaman Sea, all the way to Western Australia, down to Antarctica. And we are also, also talking about east, the eastern coast of Africa, Madagascar, Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, and of course, the uh, eastern parts, the eastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. All of this is the Indian Ocean region. And India occupies a God-gifted, dominant geographical position in this region. If India wants, in 10 years, it can dominate the entire region if it builds a strong enough navy. So the answer is very simple. In order to dominate this region, India needs to have a powerful navy and is, and uh, what goes along with that is a powerful air force. So what do we do? So what we need to immediately aim for is we need to, in the next 5 to 10 years, be able to, on demand, choke off access 
to the various strategic choke points in the region. One is the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb here between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. It is a very na narrow region. If you if you dominate this region with your navy, you can choke it off. Same for goes for the Strait of Hormuz over here between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. That's a very important strategic choke point. Then there are two other choke points: the Gulf, the, the Strait of Malacca, and the Sunda Strait over here. So that's where all the Chinese shipping uh, goes through. And of course, we have the Andaman Sea. There are the very strategic, uh, it's a very strategic region, or much of the shipping goes through the Andaman Sea, through the Andaman Nicobar Islands and the Lakshadweep Islands. So, what India needs to do to dominate this region is first of all build a strong enough navy to dominate these choke points. And we don't want more aircraft carriers. People keep on saying that Abhijit is stupid. He says aircraft carriers are not important. They are not important. We have unsinkable aircraft carriers already. All these islands in the Andaman region, the Nicobar region, are unsinkable aircraft carriers. The Lakshadweep Islands are unsinkable aircraft carriers. We don't need to, to invest tens of billions of dollars into building this slow-moving ships that are massive targets. We can leverage the geographical advantage we already have. That same money can be invested in building invisible deadly submarines. The submarines are the most dangerous ship in the Navy, naval world today in the 21st century. In the 20th century, the capital ship of every Navy was the aircraft carrier. In the 21st century, the capital ship of any Navy is the submarine. We need to invest in submarine, submarines, nuclear submarines, conventional submarines, lots of submarines. That's what we need. And of course, we should have a visible presence in the Indian Ocean so we can build uh, lots of cheap, uh, what do you call them, uh, Coast Guard ships, vessels. Each vessel should not cost more than 10, 15, 20 million dollars. And you could even put Brahmos missiles on them, you know, if you can uh, engineer it properly. So you could have hundreds of Brahmos missiles in the Indian Ocean at our back and back and call at our disposal. All these steps, we should minimize the expenses and maximize the numbers because quantity has a quality of its own. We don't have a huge amount of money to throw into this. So we need to be smart. Just like ISRO achieves so much on such a tight budget, similarly, we can do a similar thing in the naval domain as well and maximize our assets with the least amount of money. So build lots of cheap submarines, build a few very expensive nuclear submarines for sure and build lots of surface vessels which are cheap and disposable like uh, like coast guard vessels equipped with missiles missile boats missile boats are an underrated and very potent naval asset we destroyed karachi in 71 with missile boats not with big warships so these are the things that we should do and if we do that we will be able to dominate the indian ocean region we can achieve that in the next 10 years if we get our things together the problem is that the military has a certain way of thinking which goes back to the 20th century unfortunately that's why we need fresh blood in the military fresh ideas i know i sound like a armchair general sitting in an air conditioned office and talking all kinds of things but hey i i know what i'm talking about i've been studying this all my life and if you don't believe me you can uh, look, watch my interview my conversation with dr edward luthwak one of the greatest geo strategists who is still alive today and he echoes what i'm saying he says that aircraft carriers are not needed they are obsolete submarines are what any forward-looking navy with big ambitions would invest in watch my conversation with dr edward luthwak one of the best one of the most interesting conversations i've had in my whole life watch that all right next question 
Nicolo says the video is interesting. If the Yamnaya were from the Indian subcontinent, I, I think Dr. Reich also conquers nowadays. So if the Yamnaya were from the Indian subcontinent, why didn't the Vedic Dharma restrain their savagely violent impulses? If your theory is true, it undermines the narrative of a peaceful Bharat that doesn't invade other nations. This narrative is false. That Bharat is a peaceful nation that doesn't invade other nations. No. We are not a peaceful nation that doesn't invade other nations. Have you heard of the Cholas? The Cholas were Bharatiyas, right? Great emperors, Rajaraj and Rajendra, Chola. What did they do? Did they not invade and conquer the whole of Southeast Asia? The Cholas did that. What did the Guptas do? Whether it is Samudra Gupta, whether it is Kumar Gupta, or whether it's other Gupta, Gupta emperors, emperors, they invaded all the way up to Central Asia, Bahalik, Balkh, and so on, conquered the, that region. What did the Kushans do? What did Laditaditya Muktapid do? He conquered much of Central Asia. Kanishka the Great, a great, one of the greatest Indian emperors. What did he do? His empire stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Aral Sea to the, to the entirety of Xinjiang. Chinese occupied Xinjiang and so on and so forth. We have always been a militaristically expansive power. We've always been that. Whenever India has been unified under a single emperor, it has been this way. It's never been a peaceful, non-violent country that doesn't invade. No, no, no. That is not true. Absolutely not true. If you study history, you will know that this is you will know that this is a lie. So Indians have always been vigorous in military in the military sphere. We have been a maritime civilization always. We have always ex expanded in various directions, troubled whether it's for trade, whether it's for peaceful purposes, whether it's for spreading culture and civilization, or whether it's for military conquest. We have done that in the past. We will do that again in the future. We will conquer again. We are still we are still waking up. Okay, In the coming decades, India is going, going to go back to its roots and India will conquer again. No apologies. So, the question about the Yamnaya. Yes, they were from the Indian subcontinent. They, they have the haplogroup R1B, which is a descendant of R1, which is a descendant of R, which is eventually a descendant of F, which are all Indian origin haplogroups. And this year, the Indian team is going to, led by Dr. Neeraj Rai and co-collaborators, co co is going to finally release the paper, publish the paper about the origins of R1, R1A, I believe. And so it's going to throw some clarity on this matter, further clarity. So the Yamnaya were from the Indian subcontinent. The steppe ancestry, so-called, right? We just saw that the steppe ancestry nowadays originates from Iran. Eventually, it will originate from the Ganga region, Ganga Valley. So, the Yamnaya were from the Indian subcontinent. So why did the Vedic Dharma not restrain their savagely violent impulses? Because we know, it is known, that the Yamnaya decimated the whole of Europe. They rampaged through the entirety of Eurasia. They wiped out native populations of Europe, the original native populations of Europe, only the males, not the females. And then they intermingled with the females and produced descendants who are the Europeans of today. So today's Europeans... Their ancestry is patrilineal, uh, is paternally from the Yamnaya and maternally from the original European peoples. That's what it is. So why did these people, who were Indians of Indian origin, why did they behave in such a savage, violent and brutal and barbaric manner when their ancestral culture was the Vedic culture, which is a very peaceful culture? Why is it so? Well, there are a number of things that one can speak about uh, when it comes to this. Firstly, 
we kind of see tend to believe that our vedic ancestors were very philosophical peaceful people who believed in meditation and non violence 24 by 7 that's not the case they were just as vigorous and ambitious as we are today our vedic ancestors were also warriors we had a number of vedic clans who were always vying for territory and advantage advantages of various kinds we have the very famous famous event the the battle or war of 10 kings which actually involved more than 10 kings and it it is the bharata clan that came out on top under the great king sudas right who was the son of the great divodas son or grandson of divodas so sudas who was the king of the bharata clan prevailed and all the losers were booted out of india and they went westwards and northwards right so and one of the the clans that was defeated was the parshuva clan the parshu people who went westwards and populated persia persia takes its name from the parshu clan of the vedic indians now it is possible that one of the offshoots of the 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 people who lost the clans who lost may have been the ancestors of the yamnaya possibly it's a possibility i'm not saying we know we have proof but it's a possibility so what happened to those people who went westwards and northwards they left the indian subcontinent and they settled they they went and settled down and migrated westwards and settled in various parts of of eurasia central asia and eventually they went all the way west into europe we know that we know that after they left the indian subcontinent they were their umbilical cord their umbilical ties to the motherland was cut off were cut off and over time they they shed the the vedic rituals and rites and culture and customs so if you look at the various ancient indian texts they refer to the people of central asia uttara kuru uttara madra etc as mlecha people not ethnically but culturally because they have abandoned the vedic dharma they don't practice it fully they don't honor the vedic rituals fully they practice some of them but not all of them they are lax and there is some laxity in their behavior and they have acquired some barbaric traits and so on so that's why they are called mlechas the yavanas the the ionians were also mlechas they also would have eventually originally had some uh some vedic culture but eventually they gave it up so over time as the distance as the time increased and the distance from the homeland increased the culture changed their pantheon of gods remained the same all across eurasia until the advent of christianity you had the same culture in various local manifestations whether it was the celtic culture or the nordic culture or the teutonic culture or the germanic culture or the italic culture or the ionian culture the greek culture carthaginian not the carthaginian culture but whatever whatever uh santorini and so on they all had various local manifestations of the same ancient indo-european culture which originates from india the vedic culture the vedic pantheon of gods is the same is the is the template for the greek pantheon the roman pantheon and the viking pantheon of gods same gods with different names same stories so they retained the core elements of the culture but they they started exhibiting laxity in the in the way they lived their lives so slowly they lost the ethics and morality that are the bedrock of dharma 
if you see europe the celtic people etc they had all these bloodletting and human sacrifice and animal sacrifice and all that which you never find in vedic dharma right in in vedic dharma the most you have is ashwamedha yagna sometimes you have certain other medas also but it's it's a it's a very rare ritual so things changed culture changed and eventually these people who went and lived in central asia they felt they were free from the motherland there was no no need to carry on the same culture the same ethics same morality they started living on horseback started the entire land was empty of people so just go wherever you can and whatever else whatever belongs to other people if you can do if you can take it you take it and slowly they became more and more barbarized so ethnically they were still of indian origin but they had given up their indian culture and indian morality and ethics and dharma and they became barbarians and you see the result you see what they did in europe they conquered the whole of europe and their descendants are today's europeans so that's what happened right that's what happened things change aman prasad says why does the national media ignore northeast of india eastern india northeast especially southern india also is it done by the political class to keep india a divided country or is it a problem of media only it's a political thing it's a media thing it's a lot the entire establishment after 1947 was delhi centric it was all delhi centric everything was delhi 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 right and there was a time when the central uh, government would have incredible amounts of power they could dismiss any state government anytime they wanted for whatever flimsy reason or pretext and and entire regions of india were totally marginalized if you see the amount of development you have if you take the map of india where's the map of india here's the map here's the map if you see the map of india yeah from top to bottom including the andaman nicobar and lakshadweep and all that and if you divide if you if you draw an imaginary dividing line between uh, ladakh and kanyakumari if you take the western half of that of of the country starting from that imaginary dividing line you will see a certain amount of development in the western half of western half of the country and if you see the eastern half of the country you will see much less development there so most of the development in india happened in the western part of india since 1947 the eastern part of india was totally ignored and the further east you went the more marginalization you had so the northeast of india was totally completely marginalized until the 2010s until the 2015s it's only now that we are seeing progress in the so called northeast of india which is actually the far east of india states like nagaland manipur meghalaya assam etc were totally marginalized there was no development no job prospects nothing there separatism was rife for decades insurgencies were going on and the state the central government simply didn't care and many state governments maybe not all many of them were deeply deeply corrupt and and they were hand in glove with all kinds of various elements all aided and abetted and encouraged from the center for the longest time so this is very much a political thing and of course the indian media was all patronized by the politicians especially the central government so they also totally ignored what was happening in the northeast there would be all kinds of things happening which would never find any coverage in the media the so the problem is the most acute in the northeast even today people don't know what is the capital of let's say uh, mizoram or what's the capital of of uh, let's say meghalaya yeah what's the capital of uh, of uh, arunachal 
doesn't even know that most people don't know anything about these places people have never been there and is in the past when somebody from the northeast of india would come to a large city they would people would think they are from china or something that's the kind of and it's not the common person's fault that they had these sort of notions it's because the education system did not teach anyone that this region is an integral integral and essential part of india and these people are as indian as everybody else we were never taught this so it's the cause of all of this is first of all the government and political political apathy secondly the education system completely ignored the northeast thirdly the media didn't care the media was did whatever the political masters told it uh, told it and so on so and and the same goes for many parts of southern india and that is why there is a sense of marginalization among certain certain populations in south india southern southern india that uh, the entire indian uh, political landscape is north dominated the media is north dominated and so on and there is an element of truth to truth to, to this and this causes divisions in society and people from various parts of india start resenting people from other parts of india when those people have done nothing it is the politicians the education system and the media that have caused these problems but the antipathy goes towards the population towards the residents of various other parts of india so that is how great a way is that of creating divisions in indian society instead of integrating indian society together you are dividing it further and of course you have various religious and political agendas that go hand in hand and so on so that's why there are all these problems the southern part of india is ignored uh in kashmir the whole of ladakh was ignored for the longest time people did not people thought everything is kashmir the kashmir whatever the problem is 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 relegated and confined to a small valley but that dominates the entire region as if all of that is also part of the problem so that's how that's the kind of narrative the media constructs that's why people don't trust the media anymore the media cannot be trusted no there in in the media also today you have two different groups left wing and right wing nationalistic and anti-national whatever i don't trust any of them there may be some good people in there and some channels may be really good but overall they are all well it's a business and they will do whatever it takes to to create controversies you know that's what they do some some small protest is happening 20 people are protesting and you will have 50 cameras around them 20 people are protesting in some part of a city no one cares but there are 50 cameras video cameras from all the news channels in india and they put it on on the media on the news 24 by 7 there's a massive protest happening and then people start believing that the whole country is a, is under siege so that's the kind of narrative the media creates both sides of the political divide so so that's what creates all these problems in the country so that's the that's why all of this has happened you know okay jaydev says what is the significance of the falkland islands in geopolitics what benefits do these islands provide to the uk and why does argentina claim them okay where's the map where is the map where are the falkland islands the malvinas okay where's the map here's the map so now we go to the atlantic south atlantic so this here is south america yes you know that you come to the southern part the southeastern part of the south american continent is argentina all the way down south to cape horn cape horn is a very very stormy place terrible weather terrible weather 
So this here is Argentina. West of Argentina is the country of Chile. And east of Argentina, you have Las Islas Malvinas, which the British call the Falkland Islands. Okay. Now this is occupied by the British, by the UK. Now, where is the UK? If you go all the way north, here is the UK. So this little country sitting here occupies these islands all the way in the southern hemisphere of the coast of Argentina. And the Argent and, and Argentina claims these islands because it is it is like right, right off their coast, a couple of hundred kilometers, 300 kilometers maybe from the coast of Argentina. It is natural that if there is this bunch of islands off the coast of a major country, it should belong to that country. But there's a history behind this. The British occupied the islands for some time. Um, and there was a war in the 1980s. So what happened is that in 1982, I believe, the Argentinians invaded and uh, occupied these islands. And uh, Margaret Thatcher, she ordered her navy, her, her military, to launch an expedition to reconquer the islands. Then there was a war over here. The Americans kind of supported the UK. And the UK eventually was able to defeat the Argentines and re-establish re control over these islands. So that's what happened. The capital city is Stanley, right? So that's what it is. Now, what benefit does it provide to either country? For Argentina, it is essentially a matter of honor and prestige that these islands off our coast should belong to us. Very simple. Why should it belong to a country that lies a few, several thousand kilometers away? And of course, you want more territory. If you hold a bunch of islands, it's good for you. The British, they want... Well, what geopolitical benefit does the UK gain from it? Nothing. The UK is not a world power. The UK is a has-been power. It is a power that has lost its relevance and significance in geopolitics. It is no longer a, an active player in geopolitics, except as being an American vassal state. So... It provides no benefits to the UK, but it provides some benefits to the US. Because if your vassal state holds some islands in this region, it's, it's good for you. You can use it in the future for some military purpose or whatever purpose. So that's what it is. For the UK, it's just about prestige, holding on to, to past glory. So they were able to do it in 1982. Their military, their, uh, their navy was still more powerful than the Argentine navy. And they were tacitly supported by the U.S. And that's what happened. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's in very brief about the Falkland Islands. And the U.K. doesn't really have any major uh, role to play in geopolitics. But it's just holding on to that region for prestige, nothing more. Okay, what could... This is by Vishal. What could be... The, no. Could the next major conflict escalate between Greece and Turkey or the Aegean Islands? Would India support Greece in such a situation, considering that, uh, that Turkey sides with Pakistan? Okay, what is this entire thing about? Where's the map? We go back to the map. This time we go to the Mediterranean region. So this here is the Aegean Sea. If you can see my mouse pointer, hopefully you can. Let me zoom in. In the center of the screen is the Aegean Sea. In the west is Greece. In the east is Turkey, Anatolia. In the north is uh, the European portion of Turkey, west of Constantinople, which is which was once known as Thrace. Okay, so the Aegean Sea 
is what divides Anatolia or Turkey from Greece. And if you see, there's a whole bunch of islands there. And these islands are very close to Turkey. But if you see, let's take the island of Samoth. Okay. If I click here, it will say that this is part of Turkey. So where I clicked is Turkey. And just a couple of kilometers away, less than two kilometers away, it is Greece. So these Greek islands are right off the coast of Turkey, a whole bunch of islands, all Greek islands right off the coast of Turkey. Now, obviously, Turkey covets these islands. Turkey is a territorial, territorially expansionist nation. So what happened? How did so many Greek islands end up right off the coast of Turkey? To understand that, we have to go back to the 19, 1910s and 1920s. At the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire which had supported Germany and Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire ended up on the losing side. And the victorious powers dismantled the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. They carved Turkey up into a bunch of pieces and uh, various portions of Turkey were handed over to various European powers. And uh, some parts were in the possession of the of the Balkan states, I mean, the, the Bulgarians had uh, had uh, certain ambitions when it came to Turkish territory. The Greeks had some ambitions because originally the entirety of Anatolia was Greek, right? All of this was originally Greek. It was part of the Eastern Roman Empire, which was, which had an immense amount of Greek culture and influence. And even before the Roman Empire was a thing, Anatolia was part of Greece. The ancient city of Troy where is it? Hisar Lake? Where is it today? Uh, somewhere here. It was in Anatolia, Troy. So the Greeks have territorial ambitions when it comes to retaking their ancient homeland of Anatolia. So at the end of the Second World War, the Europeans had taken over Turkey. Now the Turkish nationalist uh, soldier Mustafa Kemal, he fought the Turkish War of Independence. He fought against the uh, occupying powers. He fought against his own caliph. Uh, the last Sultan of Turkey, and he came out on top. He defeated them all. He established an independent nation of Turkey, and he was he was given the name of Ataturk by his people, the father of the Turks. So when he won the war of independence, all the occupying forces were driven off, and uh, the city of Izmir, which was known, known as Smyrna, was burned. All the Greeks, Armenians, all the Christians were driven off. Many of them were massacred, and they all escaped from there. So the, the Turks took over the entirety of, uh, of Anatolia, this peninsular region, but they were not able to take over the Greek islands. So the possession of all these islands remained in the hands of the Greeks in at the end of the Turkish War of Independence, 1920, 22, whatever it is. And that's where the map has been ever since. But I am sure the Turks, if they become militarily more powerful, would want to take over parts of some of these islands in the future. We know that they took over Cyprus in the 1970s. Cyprus is a Greek island. It was a Greek island until the 1970s. Which year was it? Somewhere in the 70s. The Turks invaded Cyprus and they partitioned the country into two bits, into two parts. North Cyprus is held by Turkey. It is occupied by Turkey now. And the south of Cyprus is still is still in Greek possession. So they could do this, a similar thing in the future with Rhodes, perhaps, perhaps with uh, Samos. And there are various other islands like Lesvos and so on. So it could be, it could happen in the future. 
मे बी समाइम इन द फ्यूचर वेन थिंग्स बिकम मोर जियो पोलिटिकली फ्लूड वुड इंडिया सपोर्ट ग्रीस इन सच अचुएशन कंसिडरिंग द टर्की साइज विद पाकिस्तान यू डोट सपोर्ट अ कंट्री आउट ऑफ प्रिंसिपल यू सपोर्ट अ कंट्री इन जियो पोलिटिक्स वेन यू हैव समथिंग टू गेन if we support greece over turkey what do we gain we can issue a statement that we condemn so and so and we support so and so but beyond words india is going to invest nothing in such a war or such a fight because we don't quite have a horse in that race if turkey wins we gain or lose nothing if greece wins we gain or lose nothing so from a geopolitical perspective it is all it has to always be about your own self interest your national interest uh we would certainly issue a condemnation to whoever invades first if turkey invades any greek island i am sure india would condemn it and we would vote against turkey in the un so so all of those symbolic gestures we could do but beyond that no material support will be forthcoming for sure unless we have something to really gain from it so that's what i can say in brief about this joydev says what significance is the country's name hold on the global level after turkey changed its name to turkey what impact by changing our country's name to from republic of bharat to bharatiya ganraja ganraja can create excuse me <clears throat> see a name change is a symbolic thing it has no geopolitical impact as such it has a symbolic impact it has an emotional impact changing a country's name is aimed at your local people at your local population it has implications at an internal level rather than at an external level for me i don't care whether you call turkey turkey or turkey or ostrich or whatever i don't care what you call it it is what it is it, it whatever title you put on that geographical territory it's going to still behave the same in geopolitics so from a geopolitical strategic geo strategic perspective a name change does nothing but from a cultural perspective it has a certain significance so it's all about the rise of turkish nationalism we will no longer call uh, define ourselves by a name given to us by foreigners foreigners we will use our own uh, native name for our country that's the the, the that's the uh, message that's being given out so it's aimed primarily at the people of turkey that we are going to be a more nationalist nation now onwards so if india changes its name from india to bharat it is going to mean nothing in geopolitics but yeah the perception will change the people of the world will will see india differently uh, that yeah india is becoming more nationalistic there is a there is a ri- rise of wave of nationalism and all that that's what the new york times and the guardian and um, washington post etc they will say they will say it's a continuation of the nationalistic uh, policies of of the so of the local of the, of the government and so on so there's going to be if we do that it will have certain some such ripples or impact but nothing big from a geopolitical perspective but it will impact the self image of the people of india it will have an effect on the on the psyche of the people of india there will be a resurgence of national pride among the people who are nationalistic and there will be protests and riots and arson and all that from the people who are within india but they hate india and who are agents of other forces so that sort of thing will happen so that's the whole uh basket of scenarios 
Nikhil says, I am a software developer. I use cloud, I use cloud hosting, uh, Git, cloud host, uh, cloud services like Amazon Web, Web Services, Azure, AI models, other tech services that are vital to the software industry on a daily basis. There isn't a single one of them that is an Indian company. I'm afraid of how much power the US has or our entire software industry. Imagine if they outload Visa and MasterCard in Russia, if they do the same to in, in India with Amazon Web Services, our entire industry will collapse since we don't have an alternative. What are your views on this? I agree with you completely. Cloud hosting is an integral part of uh, the entire software industry. If they cut off access to AWS or, or any other cl cloud hosting service or, or to the major cloud hosting services, the entire sector could collapse. The entire IT sector, software sector could collapse. Uh, Git, all of these things are based in the US. I spoke about Web Web 3 yesterday, in Web Web 2 and Web 3 and Web 5. Web 3 is about the decentralized web where nobody owns the information, where all the information is available in a decentralized manner. That needs to be implemented. Right now, too much power resides in the hands of one country and in a small number of individuals within that one country. A bunch of billionaires from Silicon Valley. And the people who who own those billionaires, which is the the U.S. deep state, so it is extremely dangerous for the world because so much power uh, resides in such a small number of people, and they can cut it off at will. They can deny it to you at will if you don't uh, bend to their uh, their demands. So we have to understand that this is what we are living through right now. Our country is technically independent but we are still so very dependent on on the west on the us for all of these things they they switched off mastercard and visa in russia they cut off uh, access to swift and it's it's, it's caused so much uh, trouble in russia now we have developed upi we are developing the next the next level of upi and so that's great the Indian payments infrastructure is way better, way more advanced and way faster than what they have in the West. So that is an advantage we have created. Now we need to start developing our own infrastructure, whether it is cloud hosting or any of these other services. All of that needs to be replicated in India. And hopefully we will see the rise of blockchain, the rise of Web3, and hopefully something beyond Web3, Web4, Web5, whatever you want to call it, which is truly decentralized, a truly decentralized internet, so that nobody actually can cut off access to anything. We have had this since the, for the past 20 years or so, the P2P technology, what's it called? Um, torrent, torrent technology, BitTorrent and uh, all that. So that is something, those, are, those files can never be taken off the internet. As long as somebody is seeding them, it's all available in a decentralized manner. No, you, you can you simply cannot de de delete that from the internet. Once it's, once it's there, it's there. So if the entire web is decentralized like that, using blockchain technology, then these problems will go away. But even today, Web3, even Web3 is not fully decentralized. It is still very much in the custody of a small number of people in Silicon Valley. So the internet needs to evolve. It needs to become properly, truly, genuinely decentralized. And India should also, while that while that happens, India should, in parallel, at the same time, create its own infrastructure, which which replicates whatever the US has, cloud services, AI models, Git, and so on, AWS, Azure, whatever. All of that needs to happen in India also, so that we can fully, truly become independent. Right now, we are dependent on the US 
for all of these things. So this is a very good point that Nikhil makes and I agree with him. Kiran says, why has communism never been implemented the way Karl Marx intended it to be? He predicted capitalism will collapse and naturally transition to a socialism based to socialism. Will that ever be possible? <laughs> so the question really is, why has communism never been implemented the way Karl Marx wanted it to be implemented? Okay, so my question is, what did Karl Marx want? How did he want communism to be implemented? How? What he said is, society is controlled by the capitalists. They control the means of means of production. They control the means of distribution. They have a stranglehold, a chokehold of the economy and everything else. They own the people who are in power and blah, 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 all that. He said society is terrible. It's very unequal. The proletariat... The, the unwashed masses, the laborers, they are oppressed. So what Karl Marx said is that there needs to be a dictatorship of the proletariat. A number of people, a group of people who will hold all power in the name of the proletariat, of the workers. Workers of the world unite. Unite together, overthrow the capitalists, overthrow the bourgeoisie, get rid of the, of the, of the lumpen elements or whatever it is the lumpen proletariat. So the proletariat must rise up. There needs to be a revolution. Karl Marx wanted a revolution and he wanted a dictatorship of the proletariat. And he wanted collectivized a collectivized society where all property is collectivized. Nobody owns anything, but everybody owns everything. You don't own anything in specific, but you own everything. Everybody is given whatever they need, right? But you have to work in exchange for that. And everybody lives a, an ideal life work in the daytime, read in the evening, criticize in the night, drink a glass of whiskey and go to sleep. That sort of thing. So the ideal Marxist life, that's what he wanted. So what are, what are the specifics? He said that the way to transition from a capitalist society to a Marxist society is via a people's revolution. So he wanted the transition to be via revolutions. A revolution is a violent overthrow of the existing government, existing regime. So he wanted violence. Did he specify what sort of people should lead the, the, the revolution? What sort of leadership did he envisage who would, that would lead the revolution? He said nothing about that. And when we talk about violence, it's always the most violent people who become the leaders at the end of a violent coup, typically. Secondly, he said there should be a dictatorship of the proletariat. Did he ever say that what kind of people should come to power in this dictatorship of the proletariat? And who will decide who comes to power and who, and who will lead a post-capitalist society? In a pro Once Marxism is established, who should lead the people? Who should be in the government? He never said anything about that. He never defined the ideal leadership. He never defined the leadership structure. He never defined how the leadership will be selected or elected. Will there be a democratic election or did he despise democracy? Did he want authoritarian rule? He said nothing about these things. And that is why capitalism, uh, communism has never been implemented in, in any, any proper way. Because Karl Marx never defined what he really wanted. He said violent overthrow of capitalism and dictatorship. You could interpret that in 3,000 million different ways. 
so he has deliberately created this problem and every every time communism fails they say that yeah you know they did not implement it properly there is no right way or proper way of implementing it because karl marx never defined what the correct way is communism marxism invariably attracts the most despotic people because the people who truly understand what marxism is well they they are the ones who are the most ambitious and the most unscrupulous people so that is why marxism or communism has always failed it has always caused misery trouble and uh, and uh, starvation genocide massacres and so on look at uh, uh, look at russia look at the ussr look at uh, look at communist china look at mao's regime look at uh, stalin's regime nikita khrushchev and all that uh, the gulags look at uh, pol pot's experiment in cambodia look at uh, angola look at all the other marxist experiments it's always been a disaster at the end right i'm not saying it's it's a bad idea if you could have you know there are certain indians who say there should be dharmic marxism well, maybe that should be that should be tried <laughs> i'm just saying you know so there are a million different ways of interpreting marxism and implementing it it's thus far it's been done in a terrible way maybe there could be a good way of doing it but we still haven't found it i mean we still haven't seen it implemented in a way that is actually beneficial in the long run for the people and the nation all right okay jaydev says what kind of politics is going to be played in space race in the space race and mars colonization who will dominate this arena the powerful people or the one who reaches first so the the, the easiest way to understand this is to draw a parallel with the age of uh, the past 500 years the age of exploration of the seas so the european powers uh, they developed a means of navigation ships the compass the sextant and various instruments and so on and they were able to map out the trade routes the various sea routes and all they were they started exploring the oceans and the portuguese did that the spanish did that the british did that the french did that all the major european powers were on this race to explore the world to explore the far reaches of all the oceans the south atlantic north atlantic north pacific south atlantic, south pacific the antarctic ocean the arctic ocean and the rediscover india rediscover china and so on and so forth they discovered the americas there was a big race to discover new places to map out the entire world and to colonize every last piece or last square kilometer of the non european landmass right so the same thing is eventually going to happen in space we are at the very beginning very beginning of the space race and in the 21st century the two or three nations that will lead the world in space exploration are the two or three countries that will lead that will rule the world overall it's not going to be more than two or three countries eventually there will there'll be just one i believe right one or two maximum two so who will dominate this arena the most powerful power or the one that reaches first i think it could be the one who reaches eventually you don't need to have first mover advantage if you look at technology if you look at exploration colonization the one who moved first is not necessarily the one who succeeded overall who came first to india it was the portuguese who came first to india but eventually and, and the british came a century later the british came were late by 100 years and yet they were the ones who conquered india eventually and they established the largest uh, 
empire the world has ever seen until the US empire. So um, it's not always the most powerful one that starts. So as of today, the US is the most powerful. Um, the Chinese are number two. So these are the number two nations, the, the top two nations. Are these two going to be the one that dominates space in the future, in the next 100, 200, 500 years? Maybe not. They will certainly be the two, three countries that move the first, move the fastest. Um, but eventually, the ones that achieve the biggest technological breakthroughs and do the most with the least, they could be the ones who dominate in the long run. So space exploration is going to tie in to the geopolitics that we have on Earth. Because space exploration is all about resources. It's all about expanding to new territories. It's about acquiring new territories, new resources, new lands. And so that's all about control. It's all about power. It's all, all about wealth. Uh, so in the moon, there is this rush right now going on. The, the great moon rush is happening now. Uh, the Americans want to go there. The Chinese want to go there. India possibly, hopefully, will not be left behind. So in the long run, you will see colonies on the moon. In the long run, you will see colonies on Mars. The first colonies could be American, Russian, Chinese colonies, perhaps. But who will dominate in the end? It depends. We don't know quite yet. But the ones that will uh, make the most technological progress eventually will win. So that's what will happen in the long run. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, we humans are very weak compared to some giant reptiles, yet we survived. So if our weak selves made it, then why couldn't a massive prehistoric alpha predator like Titanoboa was able to ensure his survival? Okay, so we humans are tiny and weak compared to other animals. We survived. Other animals are way more powerful than us. Even our cousins, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, the gorillas, who are so close to us genetically, they are much more powerful physically than us, right? And uh, massive animals used to, uh, used to exist. The Titanoboa. So who is this guy, Titanoboa? It was the largest snake that ever lived. Let me show you what this creature looked like. Titanoboa. Let's go to Google for a change. Where is Google? And let's search for Titanoboa. T-I-T-A-N-O-B-O-A. B-O-A. Titanoboa, a snake. So this snake lived uh, about 60, 65 million years before, before today. It has gone extinct, of course. Um, it lived right after the, the extinction event of the non-avian dinosaurs. Massive, massive snake. Let's see a comparison. So see how big it was. Way, way huger than a human being. Massive snake. King of the snakes. The largest snake that we know of. That's how large this creature was much, much larger than the largest snake that lives today, which is the anaconda. So the size is about 43 feet, longer than a bus, and it could easily eat several human beings if it, if it, if it wanted to. So why did a, such a powerful, massive, monstrous snake die out? And why did us little humans survive? That is the question. So, size can be a disadvantage from an evolutionary perspective. When we talk about evolution, we're talking about the, the course that a species takes over millions of years. Okay? So there is something called evolutionary advantage, survival of the fittest. You don't need to be enormous and muscular 
to be fit. Sometimes you can be thin and weak physically, but be fitter. So if we look at the entire history, in the entire known history of our planet, of the life on our planet, then from all the life forms that we know of, from the fossil record, etc., the most dangerous species that has ever lived, the deadliest species that has ever lived is Homo sapiens. Not the dinosaurs, not T-Rex, not Titanoboa, not anybody, not any other species. The most dangerous predator that has ever existed is Homo sapiens. And the tool that we have used is not our massive strength or or anything that anything like that. It's the brain. It's the brain power. We are the most intelligent of the species that that we have known to have existed on the planet. And that intelligence is the greatest tool that we have. It is the greatest advantage that we have. And we are a naturally violent species. We are a warlike species. We, Our entire history is a history of warfare. The entire history of the human species is a history of warfare. Even our close cousins, the chimpanzees, are just as aggressive and violent as us. They have clan warfare and gang warfare. You should see the documentaries. Brutal. So it is something that's in our DNA. We are the most intelligent species that possibly ever lived on our planet and we are extremely aggressive, extremely violent that's in our DNA so that is why we have been able to rise to the top of the food chain, today all other species are subsidiary to us we are on top of the food food chain we are the apex predator we are a super predator right? even if T-Rex was alive today, I think people would be barbecuing the T-Rex and we would find T-Rex meat in the supermarkets. The size doesn't matter. A T-Rex is nothing compared to, compared to a, 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 a 10-year-old child with a, with a gun. Right? So, and, and sometimes a large size can be a massive evolutionary disadvantage. If you are a 50-foot snake, imagine how much food you need to eat on a, on a daily or weekly basis. These giant reptiles, snakes, pythons, anacondas, they typically eat food once a week or, or two, two, three, two, three times a month. But they need to eat large amounts of food in order to sustain their bodies because they have very massive bodies. And these are predators, carnivorous animals. So a massive snake like Titanoboa would have to, ha- have to hunt regularly and eat massive amounts of food. And this was pro- primarily a snake that lived in the, in the waters. And it, it hunted on sea animals, fish, mammals, etc., reptiles, etc. And in case there is climate change or some kind of evolutionary change in which the food becomes scarce, then a massive species like this will easily go extinct because it won't be able to find sufficient food to ensure its long-term survival. Whereas if you are a small species, you don't need that much food. And if you are intelligent enough, you can find food from anywhere, in any way possible. Using foraging techniques, using hunting hunter-gatherer techniques, or if you invent agriculture. So that is why we survived and these species like Titanoboa, etc. went extinct. We were around when the dinosaur extinction happened. When the Chicxulub impact event happened 66 million years ago, when all the non-avian dinosaurs died out, our ancestors were there and they survived somehow. So we are a very hardy species. And our ancestors at that time, 66 million years ago, did not look like us. They were this small. They were rat-like animals. Right? 
that's what they were small tiny mammals that lived under the ground they behaved like rats and their descendants ended up like us so survival of the species is a long term game it's something that happens over millions of years and if you evolve in the right way you will rise to the top of the food chain as we have and these massive beasts that look so impressive they don't last long unfortunately that is the story okay mm. are motivational speakers and life coaches any good can they make some difference in the lives of their audience um you know motivation is for is for beginners if you need motivation to start you will get you will end up nowhere motivation should not come from outside you motivation should come from inside you and motivation should, will come if you know who you are and what your path should be if you have a long term goal that is worthwhile that is worth achieving then you don't need external motivation your motivation will come from itself you will wake up in the morning ready to go and fight to achieve that goal in 10 years time these motivational speakers what they do is they play on your emotions they try to charge you up so it gives you an emotional high yeah i'm going to do it blah 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 after half an hour that emotion is gone the motivation is also gone so what motivational speakers do is they conflate emotions with motivation emotions are things that go up and down up and down a person who is driven by emotions will never achieve much in their life emotional people are like a boat are like boats in the sea when there's a big wave they go up when the wave when there are no waves there it will be it will be completely flat you go up and down on the emotional uh, roller coaster and you don't have a stable life so motivational speakers try to play on your emotions but after half an, half an hour the motivation is gone because the emotion is gone Mo- true motivation comes from inside and if you have motivation you don't need any motivational speaker or any motivational music or anything you just wake up ready to fight and and go on the mission so to make a difference in your life you need to have a goal a big goal a 10 year goal and then you can uh, then that will motivate you uh, life coaches are a different breed of animal they t- a life coach i imagine would give you strategies and tactics about how to achieve a goal so let's explain how it, what it is like let's say you are at point a and you want to end up at point d from a to d and you don't know how to get there you don't have the map let's say you are sitting in in bangalore and you want to reach uh, berlin you know i am you are here and you want to reach there but you don't have a map so you don't know how to go there should i go by train should i go by taxi should i go by auto rickshaw should be should i go by plane should i go by submarine how should i go and what what route to take so you need a map so what a life coach a good life coach would do is they will give you a map and they will show you two three different ways of reaching there and they will also show you the best way of reaching there so that's what a life coach does a life coach is very different from a motivational speaker a life coach if you have a good one i expect would make a good difference in your life but motivation speakers are just uh, they just play on people's emotions i uh, <laughs> i i don't see any value in that personally maybe it it helps some people if it does help you good for you it's never helped me i I've, i've seen some motivational speeches speeches and all I, you know it's it's just they're just playing on people's emotions right so that's what i have to say about this an amazing indian, indian citizen says have you ever felt that you have have you ever felt that you have learned everything in science history geopolitics etc if yes how did you overcome it i have never had to overcome this because i've never felt this way 
I always feel that I know nothing. I, I have so much to learn. I am simply sharing with you all what I am learning. I always read. I am always learning something every day. There is so much I have to learn. I know so little, whether it is science or it's mathematics or history or geopolitics. There is so much history that I still haven't explored, that I would like to explore. There are so many minute details that are very interesting about various phases of Indian and world history, especially world history. There is so much in science that I haven't explored. There is so much mathematics I still need to learn. Probably I won't learn that because it's kind of a... I only learn certain math if it's useful, if it has some useful application in, in physics. But that's how it is. So I have never felt once in my life, once, even once, that I know everything. The, the constant feeling I have always had is that I have so much to learn. I have learned nothing thus far. And that's why I, I always keep learning something. So that's my perspective. That's how I am. I have never ever for one microsecond had the feeling that I know so much. No, man, I don't. Right? Okay. That's it for today's uh, questions. Let's take some live chat questions for the next five minutes. I And, and when I talk about motivational speakers, I... I am not pointing fingers individually at anybody. I don't even know who the big motivational speakers out there are. Okay, because I don't, I don't consume that sort of content. I don't watch that. I am not into that. So please don't uh, construe this as me pointing fingers at anybody. I'm not. I'm not. I'm sure there must be some good ones that uh, also at the out there. So yeah, that's what I have to say about this matter. Now, any questions? Um, please answer Sambo Mukhopadhyay's question about South Korea. Who is Sambo Mukhopadhyay? What is that question? Okay, look, there are millions of questions here, but uh, if I can find... So, so, so some people get really upset that I did not pick their question. Please, please, my dear friends, please understand. I get thousands of questions every week in the comments. I can only pick 20, 30. And in the chat here, I can see questions coming in every second. I most likely I'm going to miss your question. I try my best to pick up the questions. So please don't take it personally. If I don't answer your question, I am trying to pick up the questions that will serve everybody as best as possible, that will help the maximum number of people. All right. So please don't take it personally. Now, let's see some questions if there are any. Atharva says, how to learn geopolitics? Just like, just like me. And how to read book properly if you just like you remember the book prop the whole book properly how to learn geopolitics i have never learned geopolitics i have learned history i have been incredibly curious about history i started with world history i read i have spent thousands of hours possibly reading history books okay world history egyptian history roman history greek history indian history eventually chinese history mongol history japanese history history from the colonial era and so on i have spent thousands of hours i've read thousands of books, thousands of articles. You cannot understand geopolitics unless you understand history well. And you cannot understand history well unless you spend thousands of hours reading thousands of books. There is no substitute for hard work. People, I'm not saying, Atharva, you are making, doing this, but I see this question lots of times and people seek shortcuts. Give me one book. If I read that book, I will know geopolitics. Never going to happen. There is no substitute for hard work. There is no substitute for patience. Okay? So, you've got to put in the time. You've got to read. The best way to learn geopolitics is to be incredibly curious about history. World history. And the more you read about world history, the more you read, the more you'll be able to cross-link 
events across the world and the patterns will slowly start becoming visible and once the patterns of history start becoming visible you will start understanding the cause and effect dynamic and once you understand the cause and effect chain the causality chain that's when you will start understanding geopolitics because the same patterns are are seeing are visible today these are timeless patterns and all the events and forces and powers that and, and persons that drove historical events in the past centuries the same patterns are applicable today we are still seeing the same patterns today you understand history you will understand geopolitics and you will understand the root causes of all the conflicts that are happening today there is no substitute for hard work there is no substitute for reading thousands of books and there is no substitute for having patience so i don't have any shortcuts to offer to any of you but i can offer you the path the only path i know all right hope that helps okay let me take maybe a question or two more um uh, when will you do a one on one video conference i love asking questions in person you know i i kind of enjoy that but i also that that format i have tried multiple times in the past the problem in that format is that people kind of take advantage of me being a nice person i don't i am not rude i am not i'm i'm not a rude person i am a very lenient person and people the one rule i have on these shows when i do a video thing is that everybody asks one question but then people take advantage and they ask multiple questions they want to hog the the thing they want to hold on to the thing as long as possible and so the i i personally feel that when i do this video calls when i invite people to talk to me on video and ask questions on video there is no quality uh, control anybody can come and ask anything which is not a big problem but sometimes the question they ask is not the best question and sometimes they just try to prolong their time on screen as long as possible so it's not beneficial to everybody it's beneficial to one person at a time the intent of this show is to answer the best possible questions from this whole pool that i get every week and help as many people as possible with some knowledge that i may have that is the intent of this show the show is not about me it's not about any individual person it's about everybody as a whole that's what i wish to do and that's why i have kind of stopped the video thing video conference thing right now maybe i will not do that in the i have no immediate plans of restarting that so yeah it's it's i'm i'm sure people enjoy it i also enjoy it but it's not beneficial for for everybody so that's why i am not doing it right now okay uh any other questions so many questions uh i will take one more final question okay shriyansh says where what do people who live in china or japan think where does buddhism come from everyone knows it comes from india no question everyone knows it the chinese know it comes from india the, the japanese know it comes from india everybody who is a buddhist knows where it comes from uh, so there is no doubt about that and over there they don't even see much of a difference between buddhism hinduism it's it's uh, it's only us in india who try to because of political reasons who are trying to create a a delineation or dividing line between bodh dharma and hindu dharma and they are separate things no there is no such thing as a separate thing they are the same thing there are small technical differences between buddhism and hinduism but look at the life, look at the morals and ethics that the people who follow buddhism or hinduism have exactly the same the same values the same morality the same ethics the same principles yeah some technical differences about whether there is a soul or not or whether the soul is immortal or not those technical differences don't matter your values are the same your lifestyle is the same 
so it's the same thing be the difference is maybe 1% the similarity is a 99% if you don't believe me see what, what the dalai lama says the dalai lama is the highest ranking buddhist uh, person today see what the dalai lama has said multiple times about buddhism and hinduism if you don't trust me i'm sure you can trust the dalai lama the greatest authority on buddhism today so that's what i have to say about this and with this we come to the end of today's session thank you very much everybody as always a great pleasure answering all these questions and i can see new people are coming in with some new questions which is great to see so we shall continue doing this and i will see you in the next episode next week until then take care thank you very much great again to be with you all and i will see you next week take care bye